Lesson one, basic hip. My guest is Willard Jenkins. He is a, a jazz radio uh, broadcaster. He's also uh, a jazz promoter and educator and blogger. You'll find him at openskyjazz.com. And uh, part of Open Sky Jazz is an excellent blog uh, called The Independent Ear. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure to have Willard here on the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I asked you here after uh, having been a reader uh, of, the, of the blog for quite some time and um, really appreciating some of the things that uh, you've covered on the blog that I, I don't think get covered in a lot of other places, particularly uh, j- the kind of relationship of jazz and, and the black community in this day and age. Um, before we talk about that, though, uh, I'd be interested just in, in a little more of your bio and how you came uh, to be so passionate about this music. When were you first introduced to jazz? Well, I was first introduced to jazz growing up in my household uh, by my father's record collection. And uh, I'm finding that that kind of uh, uh, parental and familial and home influence is not what it once was. But back when I was growing up, I'm part of the baby boom generation, I guess you could say. That was uh, prominent in my house, and it was just kind of uh, osmosis for me. So what kind of stuff was in your dad's record collection? Oh, he liked the classic stuff. He he was he was very much a Duke Ellington and Count Basie fan and he had a lot of the singers like Ella and he was a big fan of Nancy Wilson when she first came along. I remember how he he always talked about how much she reminded him of Dinah Washington. And uh he liked uh he liked Jimmy Smith and uh, Lionel Hampton and he had some Fats Waller. He had a lot of the classics. Did you uh, did you find that your passion for jazz continued as you got older? Did you move away and come back? How uh, how was your relationship with jazz as you kind of grew up and, and came into your own? Well, you know, I was one of those kids who uh, I heard something I liked on a record. When I heard something I liked on a record, I would look further because back then, of course, we're talking about LPs, and most of them had liner notes. And so I tended to scan through the liner notes, one of the things I was listening and looking out for was the other musicians in a given band. And then when I really became indoctrinated and started actually buying records myself, which was uh, late in high school and early college, I liked to challenge myself by looking for records by artists who were featured on other people's, <laughs> excuse me, other people's records you know, the side people, see what records they had made themselves and, uh, you know, develop my own interests from there. And then, you know, that kind of multiplied and mushroomed from uh, from listening to their records and then looking on their liner notes at the personnel and just kind of uh, seeing who was out here. That sounds like a very organic way to follow the, the branches of the jazz family tree. Yeah, it is. It is, and 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 it, and it proved very beneficial to me because uh, it's not as though I was batting a thousand in terms of who I was discovering, but I was in that way discovering a lot of people who would have who would later have an impact, and that was another way of discovering those musicians who were coming up behind the masters, because uh, you know back then you had a real kind of apprenticeship system where uh, young artists uh, served an apprenticeship as a sideman for a leader and a master artist. And then uh, uh, over a 
third in evolution, they became leaders themselves. So uh, that was a good way, as you suggested, of, of kind of climbing the jazz family tree. Uh, who were some of the people, uh, Willard, when you were when you were coming up and starting to explore that that really grabbed your ear and spoke to you? Well, you know, some of the people who were playing with Miles Davis, some of the people who were playing with uh, Art Blakey, you know, some of the people who were playing in the big bands. Uh, so, you know, it was a, it was a gradual evolution from there, and of course, we're talking about a whole lot of musicians, and then you know, in addition to reading the notes and discovering new musicians from the list of sidemen. I started subscribing to Downbeat Magazine, and uh, from there, you know, I, I was re- religiously read the, the record reviews. The record reviews enabled me to discover new people as well. So it was just a growing process like that. up, Willard? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So did you have access to some clubs where jazz was being played or record stores uh, where it was pretty easy to get jazz? Well, yeah, yeah. And a matter of fact, uh, there was a legendary record store in Cleveland called Record Rendezvous. Uh, it was, a, it was a, you know, going back to the days of the full-service record store. So it was a record store that had... Uh, the sections for you know all the different genres of music, and so I would spend hours uh, leafing through the stacks at uh, this record store, and also that was in the days when you would find records uh, record sections at the so-called disc what, what back then were referred to as the discount houses. So I remember there was one that was near where I grew up that was called Giant Tiger, and they had a record uh, section. And I would go there because, uh, you know, I could walk there from home. So I would go there and, and troll through the stacks. So it, it became a, an obsession. And, uh, you know, I just kind of trolled my way through uh, the various uh, record stacks and discovering new people that way. You know, not only through my father's record collection, but through the recordings I discovered at record stores and continuing to mushroom things, mushroom my interest by looking on the jackets and seeing who was playing with whom. And, you know, it got to a point where I would look on a jacket and if I saw certain people, then to me it was a guaranteed winner and, 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 and guaranteed that the purchase would be uh, a, a good one. So 
it became a true obsession around the time I was a freshman in college. And I went to Kent State University, and uh, I became the guy who had the record collection on campus amongst my friends and peers and whatnot. You know, I continued to read up on the music, and at that time, there we're talking about, now we're talking about the early 70s. At that time, there was a club in Cleveland called the Smiling Dog Saloon. It was actually a place where uh, one of my peers, who is now very prominent, and his father, who was prominent in town back then, used to play, and I'm talking about Joe Lovano. Uh, Joe Lovano and his dad was Big T, Tony Lovano, and they used to play at this club. And uh, this club featured all of the great touring artists. I remember I saw the saw the original incarnation of Weather Report there, saw the original Return to Forever there, saw Keith Jarrett there, Charles Mingus, Miles came there and played for a week, Sun Ra Orchestra came and stayed for two legendary weeks, and so I just had an opportunity to expand my interests in terms of live music at, at that particular place, and before that, there had been a place in my neighborhood that was one of those organ joints. In the late 60s and early 70s, whatever black community you went to, there was likely to be a, a, a bar or a club that had had an organ band. You know, the organ, the saxophone and drums, or organ guitar and drums and that kind of thing. And there was a guy named Eddie Backus in Cleveland. who He was like the Jimmy Smith of Cleveland. So my friends and I, we would uh, sneak into this joint and, and listen to Eddie Backus, and then the Smiling Dog came along, and I got a chance to see a lot of the great touring acts. And so it uh, went from there. Well, I want to follow that thread directly into the modern day, if we can. On the, the independent ear, uh, you've been running a series uh, for a while now called Ain't But a Few of Us, mm -hmm. which uh, chronicles um, black writers who cover this music. And uh, what it, But what it seems to also chronicle, the, the subtext, and it's not always sub, is that there seems to have been a separation of this music from the community level uh, where it used to reside. This idea of like you know the organ, the organ joint in every neighborhood, that kind of thing. Is that how you see it? Do you do you see that there's been a, a separation or a kind of movement away in the black community from the embrace of jazz that that used to be the case in the '60s and '70s? I don't know if I'd quite characterize it that way, but I think you're you're pretty much on point with that characterization. You know, it's not something that, that I so much blame on some nefarious forces or whatever that took the music out of the community because I think the black community in many respects relinquished the music uh, because, you know, as opposed to when I was growing up, uh, uh, whatever music you heard in my peers' uh, parents' homes, there was at least some level of jazz there. That's not the case anymore, and and that that the reasons for that are many. Uh, part of which is, of course, nowadays there are so many choices in uh, as far as entertainment, as far as music, as far as different uh, things and whatnot in people's homes. Uh, so it's not things aren't weren't aren't as narrow now as they were then. Uh, 
but you know there was jazz in the home and so we had that influence but uh that kind of dispersed now and you don't you don't have that now and you know i i i have come to think of it as as a disparity amongst my generation that we kind of were seduced beginning with motown and by what became known as soul music and rhythm and blues etc and we became so thoroughly immersed in that that uh, jazz was no longer as important as it was to our parents. And subsequently, our children and our children's children don't hear the music like we did when we were growing up. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But that whole aspect of uh, African-American writers that I've been dealing with in my blog... Uh, you know, I've been writing about the music myself since my college days, and that began with the uh, black student newspaper, which is where I'm finding that a lot of uh, black writers got their start, either through black student newspapers or through the local, what is referred to as black dispatch or the local black newspaper. The whole idea behind uh, doing that series of conversations is because, I mean, from the from the moment I started listening to this music and writing about it and reading about it and realized who, who was actually doing the writing and who was cu- covering the music, it became clear that there weren't many uh, black people writing about this music. There never has been. And that was a curious thing to me. I mean, I... Clearly, you know, I had an opportunity to read people like uh, Amiri Baraka and A.B. Spellman and uh, Holly West and some other trailblazers. Uh, I remember Kenny Dorham, the great trumpeter, he used to write as well. Reading them, they were, they were unusual. Uh, it was unusual to see someone black writing about this music. So it it was unusual then, and it remains unusual now. So I just wanted to get a sense from some of my peers and even some older writers. The series actually started with A.B. Spellman. Get a sense of uh, how how these folks came into the music and how it was they started writing about the music and some of the... uh, some of the issues or obstacles or whatever you might characterize them as that they've faced as they've come along writing about the music and uh, finding a lot of commonality in how, you know, A, we got into the music in the first place, and B, we became passionate enough about it to write about it and and how that whole evolution has happened amongst uh, those of us who are African American and who are writing about music which uh, remains um, historically a product of the African experience in America.
so, Willard, I'm interested in, in trying to, to dive into that even a little bit more. Is it the case, and I don't expect you to have a definitive answer to this, but is it your impression that the the lack of coverage of jazz by black writers, was that attributable to the fact that it was hard for black writers to cover anything anywhere, or was it the case that even in, in black-owned publications, in the, in the dispatches or in the black student newspaper, that jazz was just not not covered even when there was an avenue to do it? Well, uh, it's a combination of all those things you just described. Uh, for one thing, um, the place of prominence uh, in black publications for jazz reporting has never been, been great. And part of that could be explained by the fact that uh, some publications, if you went back in history and were able to interview some editors from way back when, they might say that, uh, well, we really didn't have anybody writing about the music back then. But on the other hand, if you go back historically and review some of the archives of African-American newspapers, you will indeed find that there were people who were covering this music uh, for those publications. So, you know, you can argue it both ways. But as far as black writers, I don't know what to say about whether... African-American writers were felt compelled to cover the music or were drawn to other aspects of, of music writing other than jazz. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a complex question you ask. I spoke, uh, and because I'm about to probably uh, incorrectly paraphrase what he said, I won't say his name, but I spoke to a, a fairly prominent up-and-coming uh, pianist recently uh, who is himself African-American and who said that um, he thought it was important to try to bring jazz and improvised music in general uh, back into the black community, and he thought that that had really been, been lost and that it's that the separation of the community from that music was detrimental to the music. You know, there's another, the other side of that coin is that as as true as it is that the music comes from the African experience uh, in America, it's certainly been adopted now and assimilated into many other cultures, you know, all around the world. And so I wonder if we're even really talking about the same, does jazz even mean the same thing now when we talk about it as it did when we talked about it kind of in the more in the earlier days? Are uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and it has indeed. And that is, is a positive development. I look at that as a positive development. It has become more widely dispersed. It has become more diverse in terms of who plays the music. And I, I look at those as positive elements. For example, back in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s, and even going before, back before then, Jazz musicians would, 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 would travel overseas, and I'm talking specifically here to Europe, would travel overseas and, and, and find very welcoming acclaim for their music and a real thirst for their recordings. And, uh, you know, the, the, the welcome mat would be very deep for traveling uh, jazz musicians. I'm speaking primarily of African-American musicians. But over the years, those different cultures and different countries have developed their own musicians who have developed their own expressions of this music. Uh, many times, their expression of the music is directly related to their cultural experience. Uh, 
and not necessarily to the same cultural experience from which the music came from. So you're finding musicians around the world who are taking the raw materials of jazz and applying them to their own cultural expression and uh, creating their own uh, measure of jazz. And so opportunities are not as great because, let's say, the European Jazz Festival, let's use them as an example, they could they could they they could make could could uh, produce whole entire festivals that that had no uh, American artists on them because there there is such a level of proficiency uh, at playing this music in other cultures now as as it has evolved down through the years so that has created interesting dichotomies but it's just the reality of uh, of how things are have been dispersed down through the years. Well, then let's so let's follow that line of thought for a second. That uh, a common refrain, for example, in the the Ken Burns jazz series, um, all throughout, Wynton Marsalis talked about the the foundational element of this music being the blues. And if if we go now to some of these other cultures where their improvised music has come out of their own cultural experience and the blues... Yeah, and the blues is not, is part, not of part of their experience, that. right. Right, so uh, I guess my... Uh, what I wonder about many things in connection with that, one of them is it's, if, it can't possibly be true to say that the blues is at the foundation of this music because it, it is obviously... There are obviously many other places where this improvised Well, music it is possible. Works. it is possible to say that from a historical perspective. Absolutely. Where, where the where the argument comes in is, is it still valid that only music that comes from that perspective is real jazz? That's where you get the argument, and there's a lot of splitting of hairs in in there. And, but as I said, I you know I have no issue with the fact that the music has been more broadly dispersed from from a cultural standpoint. And in many cases, I've lived overseas, uh, only in Asia, I've never lived in Europe, but um, my experience, uh, for example, living in Japan and being part of the jazz community there, was that in many ways there was a deeper appreciation for the African roots of the music, even if they weren't incorporated into the, the modern performed music. There was a deeper appreciation for those roots than is often the case in this country, where there seems like there's a lot of lip service given to it, but maybe less historical understanding. So it seems like the danger that we're in is that we lose we lose an understanding of the origins of the music, rather than that there's a deteriorate, deterioration in what's being performed nowadays. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's a, an interesting observation. You look at it as a deterioration? Well, I would say no. I, so I would say I don't think the music that's being performed nowadays is deteriorating, and in many cases, I think it's incorporating other elements of the black experience that are equally valid nowadays, even if it is becoming further separated in many places from the blues. But what I wouldn't want to lose is the kind of origin story. I mean, like if you go into a you know Black History Month in any you know elementary school or whatever in the land, and you look at the poster, there won't be any jazz musicians on it. There, you know, Duke Ellington won't be on that poster in ninety nine percent of those schools, and that kind of thing to me is very scary. I mean, I don't want to. That's a huge piece of American culture that I don't want to lose, but that it seems like is being lost, whether I want it to or not. That is a huge piece of American culture, but uh, you know, it's up to us to uh, continue to wave that flag and uphold that tradition 
and to teach and preach, if necessary, the hist- historic origins of this music. Uh, you know, it's it's just up to us to do a better job of more broadly propagating this music and what I consider to be job one, which is audience development, that is developing the audience for this music, developing in- the interest in this music, and in so doing, being very clear on, on where this music came from and the raw elements that developed this music. Yes, indeed, we have a situation now where where diversity is uh, is a key element in this music, and we have people from different cultures expressing their own way of viewing this music. But we must never lose sight of the origins of the music or those raw materials. And in many ways, this is becoming a show full of my own opinions, which is not how the show usually goes, but <laughs> in many ways, to me, that is, in fact... That is the hallmark and the strength of this music. I mean, of jazz is that it is it is powerful enough and strong enough, and it has enough internal character that it can accept all these diverse influences and still remain somehow at its core, you know, true to itself. Which I don't doesn't have to mean that it's rooted in the blues, but it is rooted in a sh- in a human experience in a way that. Um, I think is very real and very you know kind of emotionally present, and that that to me is a a great thing about it. Not not anything to be worried about. In my absolutely, abs- absolutely true, and I couldn't have said it any better myself. And you know, for all those naysayers who, you know, we you know we we deal with cyclically we deal with this notion that jazz is dead, jazz or <laughs> dead slash dying. Uh, the audience is no longer there. We deal with these kinds of things on a cyclical basis. And right now there's been a National Endowment for the Arts study that dealt with the graying of the jazz audience and uh, various uh, negative uh, aspects of that. And there's a variety of ways of looking at that. I mean, the the, the, the young uh, Indian-American, speaking of diversity, pianist and composer Vijay Iyer, I, I spoke with him recently at Monterey Jazz Festival, and he, he had a debate with a guy named Terry Teachout from the Wall Street Journal who wrote a piece about a dire, the, the dire aspect of this, this jazz audience and a, a piece that is in the, the repeated syndrome that we've seen down through the years so much that I've referred to it as the O-Jazz, Po-Jazz, uh, Woe-Is-Jazz kind of <laughs> thought process. Uh, that we see so often, which will be followed, of course, in 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 in, in a matter of time by uh, reports of jazz renaissance and that kind of thing. But I think you know, uh, you know, I always go back to what the great saxophonist Jackie McLean used to say, and that is, <laughs> he used to laugh and say, you know, whenever these kind of things would come up, he'd say, you know, jazz is like the roach; you can't kill it. <laughs> Well, that's a T-shirt if I ever heard one. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You just, you just can't kill it. But we've got to do a better job of growing the audience for this music, because we've got heaven knows that we've got more than most people would would realize, and some people would be shocked at how many young people are learning to play this music in the various schools and institutions around the country. So we we have no shortage of musicians. Uh, that has never been an issue. There's no shortage of musicians, and you being a radio radio man, you know there's no shortage of 
records, okay? The record industry is not what it was. The record industry, in certain respects, is dead itself. But artists have learned how to self-produce their own recordings, and so there's no shortage of new recordings. The shortage that we have is of audience, and we've got to continue growing the audience. You know, I I I I, I got in, went off on a tangent, but I I I, I mentioned the young pianist and composer Vijay Iyer. I spoke with him out in in Monterey. And he had a debate with this guy, Terry Teachout, from Wall Street Journal. And one of his points was that, yeah, sure, the audience may be getting older, but we as a country, we as a populace, American populace, United States populace, are growing older, okay? So, you know, you know that is not a, a greatly valid argument to me. But the fact remains that... We have a lot of people who are learning to play this music, a lot of people who are recording this music, but we have to develop more people, more consumers, more people who will listen to this music. We have to do a better job of developing the jazz audience. Well, you are certainly someone who's uh, out there doing that. My guest is Willard Jenkins. Uh, you'll find him at openskyjazz.com. He also broadcasts on uh, WPFW, which is uh, Washington, D.C.'s Pacifica affiliate at 89.3 FM, his uh, Ancient Futures radio program. And uh, the blog, uh, which is part of openskyjazz.com, the independent year, is uh, one of my must-reads, and it should be one of yours, too. Uh, Willard, I think we, we could have had a, a five-hour show here, and uh, I really I thank you for coming on and uh, let's do it again because I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, I hope you'd be willing to come back and, and talk more about this. Oh, anytime I can go on and on about this stuff for days. Me and, too. Uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate I really appreciate your effort at reaching out and discussing the issues surrounding this music and 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 support your issues your your efforts on the radio and hope your audience continues to grow. Well, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I look forward to doing it in the future. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at TheJazzSession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.